We've come to the end of 2019. Python 2 has just a handful of days before it goes unsupported. And I've met up with Dan Bader from realpython.com to look back at the year of Python articles on his website. We dive into the details behind 10 of his most important articles from the past year. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 244, recorded November 8th, 2019. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is sponsored by Linode and Brilliant.org. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Hey there. I want to take just a moment before we get to the interview and say thank you. It's the end of 2019. Looking back, it's been a great year for the podcast and all the other stuff we're doing, like our courses. And it's been really humbling to get messages from all of you about how the podcast is helping you in some way or the benefits you're getting from it. And I just want to say thank you for listening because it's a true honor to be able to create this podcast for you. It's a lot of work, but it's entirely worth it. It's really, really great. And it couldn't be done without you listening and sharing it. So, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hope your 2019 was great as well. Now let's chat with Dan. Dan, welcome back to Talk Python to me. Hey, it's great to be back, man. It's great to have you back. It's been a while since you've been on Talk Python, but not too long ago since you were on Python Bytes. That was fun. Yeah, that's right. We we, uh, practically just finished recording that. And uh, yeah, it was great with uh, Cecil Phillips. And uh, yeah, had some good links that week, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm pretty excited about 2019. It was a good year. How was it for you? It was a... Very, very busy year, I would say. Yeah. 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 I feel like for you guys, like Real Python has come along a long ways. You've got a lot of authors. You've kind of got this process going. You've got your editorial, your editing, and for overseeing how the, the content creation is going. And it's, you're making a big difference, I think. Thanks. That's good to hear. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, it's just been this incredible year. You know, we, um, we're at uh, 75 authors and, and video instructors published on the site now. So I want to get to 100 next year. That would be a nice, just, cool achievement, I think. And um, we also just recently hit 2 million visitors, like unique visitors or readers in a single month, which is kind of this incredible number. I mean, I can't almost, it totally sounds like I'm super bragging here, but I, it's, I literally can't wrap my brain around that. It's just kind of nuts and, and, and really cool just to see that growth and you know, how, how it's resonating and how, how we're getting really, really positive feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really positive and congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And I think it speaks, one, to all the work that you're doing that you talked about. It also speaks to just Python's growth in general, right? Like you're riding two curves mm-hmm. and they're both going in the right direction. Yeah, that's true. So how was your uh, 2019? My 2019 was amazing. You know, didn't skip a single episode on Great. any of the podcasts. And like, I think that's a pretty big accomplishment, actually. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And released a bunch of classes. I feel like we've covered some important stories on the podcast, right? That's one of the things I try to do. We can cover every web framework and the person who creates it, and that's, that's great and so on. But I really want to highlight that Python is not just for web developers or like straight down the middle of the road data scientists, Yeah, right? You know, we've had medieval Islamic philosophers and we've had, you know, people doing machine learning for particle detection, you know, particle collisions and all sorts of stuff that yeah. might have been back in 2018. But I just 
those kinds of stories are really interesting. I think we had a, a decent amount of those, and I, mm-hmm. I'm really happy to be able to sh- you know share like those edge stories that I think are so interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's super cool. And then I think a podcast is just such a great format for it as well, right? Where, where somebody can come on and come on the show and, and, and join you there and, and uh, really give the listener a chance to understand, you know, why this is cool and like what the motivation, like that's always like the most interesting thing for me when I listen to your show, figuring out like, okay, what's, why is your guest doing that? You know, why are they so into researching Islamic philosophy with Python, which are two topics that I would have never imagined you, you would combine in some way. Yeah. And then I listen to the show and I'm like, oh man, like it, it's so cool how broad this is, what people are doing with Python. So yeah. Yeah. You listen to the story and it makes perfect sense. You're like, of course you should be doing that. And the thing I like about those types of stories is there's a lot of people that think, oh, I'm not a programmer or it doesn't make sense for me to do that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just a stock trader. I'm just a biologist. And then you hear that and you're like, all right, if somebody can use it for philosophy, mm-hmm. thousand-year-old scrolls, I should be able to find a way to make use of this in my much more mainstream type yeah. of job, right? It's like, it's, yeah, obviously there's all these amazing things people can do. They just got to be a little creative to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like we talked about this before, but this whole idea of the dark matter developer, someone yes. who doesn't actually really identify as a developer or a programmer, but um, there's so many people out there who are practically programmers or they're working right. with code they're writing code but uh they don't really see it that way a big enough part of the community to actually come along and come to the conferences or blog about programming they're probably blogging about something else that they care about something like that right yeah 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 sweet cool well let's talk about what we're going to focus on for this show so the idea is we're going to take 10 of your popular bookicles bookle, book, book, book articles your articles that should be a new that word. are near near book style on real python and just pick 10 of them we're going to call it the top 10 but it's not necessarily top 10 by pure traffic it's kind of your the ones you wanted to highlight from the year right yeah so yeah i really wanted to give a chance to to sample a, a wide a wider variety of topics because if you go purely by traffic numbers you know things are just going to get overshadowed by popular right, right. terms that people search Look, it's for for Django articles or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, and just because yeah, people are searching yeah. for that or whatever. Yeah, and so yeah, so we, we kind of assembled uh, a list of 10 articles that uh, we wanted to highlight and then go over and, and share with uh, with you. All right, where are we starting? Sweet, so we're, sh- we're starting with uh, an article that's called How to Run Your Python Scripts by uh, Leo Danis Pozo-Ramos. And um, it kind of sounds simple, right? You just right. go... Don't, don't just like Python space script up. PY? Yeah, yeah, that's I mean that's what we do most of the some, time, some right? Of the time, hit, yeah. hit control R or something like that. F5 and yeah. um this article is cool because it of course talks about that, but then it it goes really really deep into uh the behind the scenes and what some of the other ways are that you can possibly use to run Python code. So you could just, you know, load the string from off a script and then just eval it or there's uh, the import lib module in python 3 that you could use and there's all kinds of other more complex methods where you get deeper and deeper into c python you could do python space dash c and like some code yeah, right? right you could also do that if you wanted to run a code snippet from the command line and um, I just love this article because it starts with the really simple and straightforward and like main use case and then it goes deeper and deeper and deeper into all the different alternatives and uh, you know what the difference is between running a module with uh, Python dash M versus um, um, actually just running it by Python space from the command uh, Python space and then the file of the the, uh, the the file name and running it from the command line. 
And um, yeah, for that reason, you know, I wanted to highlight that article. Okay. The, yeah, that's really cool. And one of the things I like about a couple of the articles that we're covering are I look at them, the title and I go, yeah, I know that. And then I look at the article and it's like, I don't know how many words, but it's like, you know, readability long. suggests this might be an over an hour to read this article. I'm like, wait, I thought I just, that was simple and I knew it. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you, whenever I, it, that kind of makes me think, I'm like, oh, I actually might learn something here. I, if I just pay attention, like this is going deeper or into a different area than, because if I thought it was that simple and it's this, then it's clearly I'm missing something. Yeah. As the kind of the person running the site and, and working on the platform there, like I love seeing surprises like that because, uh, it's, it's always a team of us that's working on, on the articles. So we have like multiple review stages and, and uh, we review the outline and then we review the script. And there's like a technical review and just seeing these things kind of grow and you know, become a real Python article is, I just really enjoy that process and being a part of it. So yeah, this is like a great example, I think, of that. Yeah, yeah, quite cool. So covers a bunch of stuff and probably something, you know, there's definitely a few suggestions in there that I didn't know. All right, what's number two? And number two is called 13 Project Ideas for Intermediate Python Developers by Habib Shopiyu. And um, this was born out of uh, a lot of questions that we received over email or Twitter and, and uh, also most recently in our RealPython uh, com uh, community Slack where people are asking, like, I feel like I kind of know how to use Python, but I don't know what I should build right. with it. What I've should learned, I do with I've it? learned the language. I know loops. I know how to do strings. I create a dictionary, get stuff in and out of it. But what can I actually build that like is the next step? Exactly. Right? Because yeah. that's often very challenging. It's not just challenging on like maybe a lack of creativity. It's challenging in like, oh, you know what would be cool to build? Instagram. Like, no, it wouldn't be cool to build. It'd be it's very like hard to build. the lines of code. <laughs> you know what would be cool to build? Is a timer. Like, no, it's boring and it's too short. Like, what is the right yep. size where it's challenging but i can reasonably expect to do it if i put in some yeah, effort right? yeah and that's a really hard one right like i was back in the day when i learned how to code or first started i mean i guess you never really stop learning how to how to program i was in these like game development forums and uh there was every single week there was like a new person joining and they were like i want to build this mmorpg or like i want to build this like massive thing and so everybody was working on on these like massive projects that never really went anywhere and i think that yeah. could be really really frustrating and so my answer to that question, you know, what should I build as an intermediate developer was usually like, just pick whatever, you know, just take a command line app that you use and try to emulate, like try to write your own version of it. But the problem is that doesn't really work for some learners, for some yeah. students. It's, so we wanted to give them a list with ideas. You know, here's some things that we think you could probably pull off. You, know, you have a fighting chance of actually like building this app, right? And you know, it's not going to be a World of Warcraft, but um, it's going to be a cool like alarm tool or a little file manager or um, a little note-taking application. Yeah, give us a sense of some of the ideas you got there. Yeah, so the ones that I just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, so MP3 player, URL shortener, file rename. Yeah, right? that, yeah that would be or, real uh, nice. Contact right. book, I think, is also something interesting where you have, you know, there's different ways you could store the data. It could just be like a little, yeah, like an address book where maybe you as, you know, it could be as simple as just storing a dictionary to a text file, or then you could get progressively more interesting there and have a little database. Could maybe be SQLite, and, and then you could start using SQL Alchemy because you know you don't want to be writing uh, inline SQL and yep. then you know become little Bobby Tables. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> you know, someone could take your great uh, free MongoDB course. And yeah, then, exactly. And then use yeah, that. they could they could do a MongoDB. All back kinds one. of yeah, options they could totally, here. Like level these up. 
You can put them online, all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, so I like it. And you got it broken down to web, GUI, and command line. That's pretty good break. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we try to give like a high level overview. And then depending on what you're interested in, you could pick the, the right project for you. Yeah, super. All right, what's next? All right, so I think we are at article number three. And uh, what I wanted to highlight there is the article is called Three Ways of Storing and Accessing Lots of Images in Python by Rebecca Stone. And I think this article is cool because, again, it's something that I never really thought about before. You know, I was like, okay, you know, my Django app uses a bunch of static images. There's just a folder in there. Right, right. That's slash static slash IMG or something, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But what if that maybe doesn't work so great anymore? Think you're storing a massive amount of images. You know, you have some, I don't know, some robot, some probe that's going to Mars and you have lots, you have like terabytes of images and uh, where are you going to store them? How are you going to make this manageable? Right. Are you going to create some kind of like automated IoT doorbell that always snapshots whatever's close, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, you, if your house gets broken in a lot, eventually you have too many <laughs> images and you got you to gotta figure <laughs> out what to do with them. That's right. Why are all these people at my house? You're killing my storage. All right. So what are some of the suggestions? Um, yeah. So um, it goes, the article goes in, into um, three techniques there. So the first one is, you know, just like store them on disk as .png files or you know, JPEG or what have you. And then uh, the second option is using uh, a memory mapped database uh, called LMDB. And the third option is using a, a, hierarchical, a hierarchical data format like HDF5. And uh, the latter two I'd never really heard about before. But it turns out, of course, that there is uh, a lot of Python tooling available for these things. And so they provide a number of interesting features. So for example, um, there's uh, a com- compression that you could use uh, so to, to potentially limit your disk usage. And um, there's just lots of good tooling if, if that's a problem that you're facing that uh, people can use with Python. Yeah, this is interesting. Like I'd never heard of LMDB, but apparently it's Lightning Memory Mapped Databases, which sounds Sounds like, fascinating. It sounds, yeah, it's like I should definitely check that out, find a use case for that, because that sounds cool. Yeah, you got to build that, uh, that magical doorbell robot right maybe uh selfies for robots or something they just do it all day long all right awesome all right so what's uh number four uh number four is called speed up your python program with concurrency by jim anderson oh this is one that definitely definitely resonates with me it's uh yeah you have a lot of um you know great material on async io and and uh working with uh, parallelism and, and concurrency with python and the idea for this article was um to give the reader an overview of what different uh, types of concurrency that are out there. And what does it mean if a program is CPU bound versus IO bound and which options make sense using, you know, when should you use threading versus uh, multiprocessing or async IO. And we also added uh, an interactive quiz to it so that, you know, if you're reading this, you can really make sure, okay, I actually understood these concepts because they're pretty difficult to take in the first time. I yeah, that's the kind of thing that just needs to wash over you several times until you're like, all right, I'm starting, starting to get the feel of right, this thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, get, yeah, get burned by it a couple of times and you're like, oh no, I got to re-architect this again. <laughs> exactly. And I think this is important in Python because I think Python's concurrency story is both amazing, but non-obvious in some ways. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is a lot of programming languages, you can leverage computational concurrency by using just threads, right? Because I got, you know, this thing believes it has 12 threads in my MacBook here. It has six hyper-threaded cores, right? So if I were to like a, write a single-threaded program, it'll get like 8 or 9% CPU usage, and that's it. So if I want to make that go faster, on a lot of languages, C++, C Sharp, whatever, I can just create a bunch of threads, and it 
can start running on all of those different threads. But in Python, we have the gil, so it doesn't work, right? And that's, I think, actually caused a lot of challenges because people say, well, that means Python's concurrency is broken. It's not broken. It just needs a clearer mental model of when to apply each technique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got kind of like a manual gear shift, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's not broken, <laughs> but the car is also not going to go. It drives in the day, it, it drives yeah. in the day, but it won't drive at night. <laughs> put it in night mode, it won't yeah, go. Put it in end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, for example, if it's I.O. bound, probably what you want to do is something to do with async I.O., right? But if it's computational, you really need to do, at least for the moment, something with multiprocessing. Yeah. And so it, it compares yeah. those types of things, huh? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and like I said, you know, we have this quiz at the end that uh, you can take and then really make sure okay, I understand what the differences are between these concurrency models. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale that you need to take your project to the next level. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage, and the next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance that you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today with a $20 credit and you get access to native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, industry-leading processors, their revamped cloud manager at cloud.linode.com, root access to your server along with their newest API and a Python CLI. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Linode when creating a new Linode account and you'll automatically get $20 credit for your next project. Oh, and one last thing, they're hiring. Go to linode.com slash careers to find out more. Let them know that we sent you. Uh, number five. All right, number five. Build a recommendation engine with collaborative filtering by Abhinav Aitzaria. And uh, this is what, like, what do you think uh, this is? <laughs> I'm reading a real Python article and it says, you might also like these other three or exactly. something like that. Yep. Or yep. talk Python course, you might also like this one, right? It's a good follow-on. For various reasons, right? People who took this course usually took that one next, or people who read this article also like shared that other article or something. Um, yeah, exactly. It's it's about building uh, recommender or recommendation engines like you would have on you know pretty much any larger website like Netflix or, or Amazon. They're all recommending you products or movies that you might enjoy based on what you already watched. And and uh, and a lot of times, what they do is they look at uh, kind of build a profile of the things that you watched. And then kind of finding similar users, other users on the platform that, that watched those movies and enjoyed them. And then based on that, trying to figure out, okay, what do, did these other people also watch and enjoy? And maybe we can recommend that back to you. And then hopefully you'll have a good time on the platform. Yeah, that sounds really cool. It sounds like very relevant to data scientists. And there's probably a lot of data science algorithms in there, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's some, some cool stuff happening there, you know, some matrix math. And uh, what I like about this article that I really like how it turned out from, from like a typesetting perspective. So that was like a really big aspect of kind of building the, the new real Python CMS and, and hosting platform and built on Python 3, Django 2, and all the, all the good things. It was a lot of fun building it, it and working on it. And I mean, I'm still working on it. And I think this is just a cool showcase for that also, you know, where you get some graphs in there, you get some interactive or you get some code snippets that you can copy and paste and you get some uh, math type setting there. And um, I think that makes it very engaging yeah. to the reader as well. And yeah, and it's, it's just a cool topic. Like I'm, I'm just fascinated by those things, you know, how you can, you can use the, the, the wisdom of crowds or whatever that way, you know, you could say like, well, we have enough people using the platform. We have enough people watching Netflix. 
And then all of a sudden, I can get these amazing recommendations for other things I would have never thought about watching. Yeah, you help it make it better for other people without even knowing it, right? Just yep. Your, your actions are there and used for good. Yeah, so it talks about things like K-nearest neighbors and probably the fundamental algorithm there that's being used, right? Um, yeah, I, I believe it's, it's for this particular recommendation system technique called collaborative filtering. But um, there's also other approaches that I can't really speak intelligently about. <laughs> yeah, sure. There's even some cool recommendations like the surprise recommender system, which is a Python scikit-learn extension, right? So you can install scikit-surprise. Right? It's a cool name for a rec- recommender That's system. a great recommender, right? Like yeah. surprise, we actually can recommend something useful. This is not like wasted space here. Yeah. Cool, yeah. So if uh, people are interested, they can check that out. And also I noticed it's kind of, it's got this, bimodal way of working which says well if you want to use pip here's how you do it if you want to use conda here's how you mm-hmm. use that as well right so it's this one seems like there'd be a lot of folks using anaconda as their python distribution to work on this yeah i think if in the data science space conda seems to be quite popular and so typically we kind of standardize like for the articles we standardize on, on just using uh, pip because that's kind of the lowest common denominator yeah but in this case you know we, we felt like it makes sense to be closer to where the the target audience might be there. Right, right. Take it to the data scientists, right? Yeah. And yep. show it in that way. That's, that's really cool. So I love it. That's a good one. Number six on our list here. Right. So this one might be a bit surprising, but uh, it is called Your Guide to the Python Print Function. Uh, and yeah, this uh, is the one that I was talking about when I thought like, okay, I'd know this thing. Yeah. And like, wait yeah. a minute, maybe I don't know this thing. So this is more like a book about the Python print function by uh, Bartosz uh, Zashinsky, and this is just this incredible deep dive into the print function slash print statement in Python 2. Because again, you know, would think, okay, maybe this is maybe a paragraph or two about what you can do with the print function. You know, you can pass some arguments to it. It and requires get parentheses out. now. It didn't used to. Exactly right. Yeah. Like, what else is there to say? And then it goes really, really deep into the history of the print uh, print function and some common use cases that maybe you might not associate with the print function directly upon first glance. You know, for example, well, how can you build a cool console user interface? Um, how can you yeah. do colors in the terminal? And um, how can you pretty print if you have a nested data structure, like uh, some JSON that you parsed into dictionary, how can you make sure it actually looks good when you print it out to the console or to some debug window? And uh, so it's not just purely about the print function, but... Um, all the kinds of different uh, best practices and ways you can, you can make printing better in your Python programs. Yeah, that's cool. No one wants to try to uh, use a minified dictionary for debugging. Nope. That's <laughs> not very annoying. annoying. I usually take those and then paste them into the, the black online format. <laughs> I, I get like a nicer <laughs> there you go. Like, right, representation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it covers some of the things I think are actually not super obvious to new folks coming from the language, right? Like That's right. If you come from... Other languages, you might not know that you can actually use a keyword argument to set the end to be, instead of a backslash end, to be like a comma and print it on one line with a bunch of commas or something like that. Or the buffering, right? If I'm trying to do something computational and print out as the computation is happening, a lot of times that can get buffered up and then it like all shoots out at once. Or, you know, like if you're like delaying waiting on something, you won't actually see all the output. Like there's a bunch of little tips like that in there, right? Yeah, yeah, and like with everything, it's there's a deep rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, which, down, down the rabbit hole you go, right? Yeah, I love this kind of article where you think, okay, we're gonna scratch the surface here a little bit, and then we're done. And then there's all kinds of interesting other things you could do or 
just learn why certain things work the way they do. You know, ANSI, uh, ANSI or ANSI uh, escape sequences for making the uh, making colors in the terminal. When you read about them, they it kind of looks like this incredibly confusing format. And then you learn a bit more about the history and you know, how it how it relates to the the sort of these old school terminals of the old like mainframe computers and how you know it's just a format that has grown over decades and. Well, sure, we could all you know throw it away and maybe engineer something from scratch, but it's it's kind of cool to understand. You know, if I'm if I I don't know you know boot up my Windows computer or MacBook in in, in 2020, why it's still supporting that stuff and how it goes back you know 50 yeah. years. Yeah. Well, another thing that I think makes a night and day difference for these simple little command line apps is color. Uh-huh. More of those should use color, right? If you're saying in the help output, it would be great to show the required arguments as like one color and the optional ones as another. And it's incredibly easy, but if you don't know to do it or you think it's hard or it's hard to do cross-platform or whatever, then you won't. Yeah. yeah. Oh, speaking of, of color there in the, in the terminal, one of my favorite tools is the bpython REPL. bpython? bpython. So okay. the letter B and then Python, uh, one word. It's a Python uh, interpreter, like a Python, not an interpreter, but a, a REPL environment yeah. that is just like the, when you start Python from a command line, you get your little prompt and you can type uh, Python code into it and run it. But it does syntax highlighting, so it'll give you beautiful colors in the terminal. Nice. And it also does autocomplete, which is oh, kind of cool. cool. So we use that all the time in our video courses and, and examples. And people always ask, like, oh, what's that, what's that tool? I want to use that too. And it's, it's great. Like, like the color really adds a lot it, of value. It adds a lot, yeah. yeah. I, maybe I think I've heard of bpython. I haven't used it. I'm all about the ptpython. Are you familiar oh, with that? That's great too, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like Emacs in the REPL kind of. Yeah, it takes me back to my Emacs days. So last thing, like, we go on and on about this, like, incredibly for a really long time about printing. But there's one thing that's in here I think that's, that's pretty interesting that they talk about that I guess also surprised me. I didn't really think about it, is uh, mocking the print function for unit tests. Yeah, that's a, kind of a surprise, right? But it's, it's actually a pretty annoying problem if you, if you want to write tests for a program where in the test you actually want to make sure it's printing the right stuff. Well, how do you do it? You know, how can you actually redirect that output into some kind of buffer right. so you can inspect it and say, okay, we... We got the output that we wanted. I, I called this and it at, said, enter this or whatever, right? Like the, the prompt right. that we were expecting yep. or something. Yep. Yeah, 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 pretty cool. All right. Well, Wait. let's move on because it is the print function, but it is actually really, really interesting. And uh, what are we up to? Number, uh, yeah, I'm trying to check. I think number seven. This is number seven. Yes, number seven. Yeah. And it which is- goes right along to number eight in a sense. So how, <laughs> how to write beautiful Python code with PEP8. Yeah. So this is um, a cool article by uh, Jasmine Finer, and it's about the PEP8 style guide and sort of a beginner-friendly intro to PEP8, why it exists, um, how it can help you format your code in a way uh, that other Python developers will expect and appreciate. And um, I think it's it's a really good one because you know it breaks it. Like if when you read the actual PEP8, it can be feedback that I heard in the past was it's, it's just very, very overwhelming to take it all in and take all the examples in. So we try to break it down and uh, give you a good overview and then point you to uh, the original PEP so you can do the deep dive. Yeah, it's really cool. And, you know, it's one of those things that's really important that so you look like you belong, right? If, mm-hmm. if you start doing stuff that is, you know, Java style or C-sharp style and someone says, yeah, I'm interviewing for a Python job and... Here, let me write a little code for you. And you start using like camel case 
method names or something like that, you're like, mm, not so sure you're a Python developer. You don't look like you're from around here, right? Yeah, yeah. First, <laughs> first impressions matter, I guess. Yeah, and you know, once you know the conventions, some of those conventions have meaning, right? Like the underscore has a certain meaning mm -hmm. and things like that. And so uh, it's not implicitly obvious from that thing that it, what the meaning is. But once you study it, then you, you get to know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you, what's, uh, is your talk Python, is the code for the talk Python platform, is it PEP8 compliant? How do you make 8? sure it is PEP8 compliant? <sighs> it's both for the, the platform it is, I would say, PEP8 compliant. And I try to do that in the courses. Probably the way I do that most is just running like working on everything in PyCharm mm -hmm. and PyCharm will highlight stuff and make it obviously, oh, cool. it'll yeah. like, as you type, highlight it, go, no, 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 there's something clearly wrong. Like you don't have an underscore, you have camel case on a variable name. Mm -hmm. Stop doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't run anything like black across the whole thing. The only thing I've run entirely across the whole code base, not across the courses because it's recorded. So it'd be weird to change it. But in terms of the platform, I've used Flint. Are you familiar with Flint? Feel F like I L Y N T. About it. Is this another auto formatter? It's it has it's a very special tool, but I love it. What it does is it will take all the various string formatting styles of working with strings, so percent, value, value, yeah, yeah, or the yeah. format, something or other, and, and so on, and it turns them all to F strings. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it'll just rewrite your code, like rewrite all your F strings. I know a certain core Python developer who would love that. <laughs> Marietta. She'd it's all about the awesome stickers. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the exactly. F, yes, F, yes, man. <laughs> yeah, so I ran it. And in the early days, it had a couple of bugs when you were doing numerical formatting, like this number, comma, uh, colon, comma, like 0.2F. Like, that would get freaked out. But yeah, like after a couple of iterations, it's, it's really quite good. Well, that's cool. I think, I, yeah, I got I to gotta run that. That's great. Yeah, yeah, so I just ran it against like 20,000 lines of code across the training site and the Talk Python and Python Bytes websites. And... I think there was like maybe one mistake. So I just, I looked at the diff before I checked them all in and just said, actually this, you know, one out of a thousand, there's this mistake, but yeah, yeah. I think actually those are probably pretty much gone, but yeah, anyway, and it's not pep eight, but it's a uh, sort of a continuation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think with this stuff, I feel like we've got to be clear, like it can often be ambiguous, right? Like any, any sort of code style guide, like pep eight or what have you, you know, in other languages, it's usually not, um, at the end of the day, like naming is, is a big part of a developer's job, I think, you know, and in picking names that are actually communicating the intent well and other people can understand. And right. um, so it's, it's, it's not going to solve that problem because, well, even though if, you know, if you're following PEP 8 to a T and you're using all the upper and lowercase letters in the, in the right way and, and your naming isn't, just doesn't make sense, then that's also not going to be great. So it's, yeah, it's yeah, an another ongoing example might be, struggle. Yeah, you're doing a list comprehension. And the, it's all on one line, right? Mm -hmm. It's got the, you know, N for N and such and such, if N such and such. And it happens to be 79 line, characters long. So it's on column 79. It's fine. You don't need to wrap it, but it's like super hard to understand. Yep. Like it would make sense to have that three yep. lines, the select value, the loop, uh, the, the collection is going through and the, the test, right? It would be much better. But Pep8 doesn't say, well, if it's 79 lines and complicated, it should be broken up. But 80 lines is, a, you know, like the hard limit and things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we got to think beyond it. Are you following the 79 characters limit in, in your code bases? Uh, do I follow? I, sometimes. There's a few times where I don't. Like, so if I have a, um, a raw string or a multi-line string, not raw string, a multi-line string where you do triple quote, then like there's a bunch of stuff mm -hmm. and then triple quote to close it. Mm -hmm. I don't know of a way to not do more than 80 lines if what needs to be in the string is more than, or 80 columns. Right. 
but he would still complain to me like, oh no, this line's 120. I'm like, yeah, but you show me how to fix it and we'll have a conversation, but yeah. I can't fix this, right? Yeah. Without completely going, you know what? We're going to have a string concatenation like to nobody's end rather than this multi-line string. So yeah, that's a there's a one. few edge cases, but I try to. Yeah, me too. Like yeah. ever since I started using black. You're like, black's going to change it anyway. I, yeah, well. yeah, I, I think you can <laughs> tell it like to use a different line length limit. Like I feel like that's, that's always something that comes up where it's like a con- controversial topic where should you follow the 79 character limit? There's even another, there's like a 72 character limit recommendation for yeah. doc strings. Like I try to follow that as well. I have like my, you know, these like uh, little, little gutter uh, margins set up in the editor. So. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. But then at the, sometimes I'm thinking, okay, but wouldn't it be nice just to go a hundred characters or longer? So I think, I think like whatever number people pick, as long as you're consistent, it's, it's probably a good thing. You know? Yeah. It's somewhat con- contextual. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Brilliant.org. Let me knock something off your holiday to-do list. Gifts. Spread the love to your loved ones by gifting them Brilliant. This really excites me because it's such a fun way to nurture curiosity, build confidence, and develop problem-solving skills crucial to school, job interviews, or to their career. Brilliant's thought-provoking content breaks up the complexities into bite-sized, understandable chunks that will lead them from curiosity to mastery. Go to talkpython.fm slash brilliant and grab a gift subscription to help your loved ones finish their day a little smarter this season. That's talkpython.fm slash brilliant, or just click the link in the show notes. We talked about PEP8. Now, how about Article 8? Uh, <laughs> Article 8 is uh, about the Python Lambda function. So it's called How to Use Python Lambda Functions by Andre Burgo. And um, yeah, I wanted to highlight this one because... Lambdas in Python are a topic that can be challenging, I think. It's something that a lot of times you don't really have to, you don't really work with, and so you don't get a lot of um, experience working with it. And then when there might be a situation where it's actually useful, for example, if you want to you know, sort a list or something and sort it by a custom key, then if you don't know about Lambdas, it's going to be a frustrating experience or you're going to right, be right. writing. Like I got to write yeah. this other function and that's kind of weird. But yeah, so they're one of the things that when you learn them, you're like, man, that is cool. I can't believe I can think of immediately 10 places I would use this, but they're not obvious that they exist or that you could use them until you see them. Right. Yeah, that's right. And it's, what's the quote there? Like the dose makes the poison or what's <laughs> I only know the German version. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, dose yeah, makes the poison. Yeah. yeah basically you don't want to, you want to apply it. It's, it's like salt, you know, you don't want right. to overdo it with the salt because then the food's going to taste terrible. Yeah. Yeah. A pinch will do you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And so, so this article goes into some use cases and also into the uh, kind of the hmm, language history or you know why are these types of functions called lambda functions and how does this relate to this thing called lambda calculus that was invented in the 1930s and uh we go back into some of the computer science stuff that's cool so you can also learn about that you know another thing that i think is interesting that gets very little attention i suspect this is happening to a a non-trivial number of people and they don't even know is closure Mm -hmm. right so closure is the idea that like i have a variable that's either available in the local method or it's, it's a global variable, most likely it's like a, a local variable on that method where you're using the, the lambda and you say it in the function body, the lambda body, but not as an argument, right? It's right. somehow magically kind of capturing that. <laughs> yes. they, I find this so hard to explain it's just so in audio hard. only because when you see it with an example, like in the article, it's to me at least 
a lot easier to wrap wrap my head around it. But yeah, um, yeah, we, let's let's give it a shot. Like, can we? Yeah, well, <laughs> some really interesting stuff happens with closure, right? It's not just that the variable is like passed, but it's it's remembered. It's remembered across function calls. And so, if you even if you change it and then you call the the lambda again, it will work with not the original value like a copy, but it'll work with a changed value, which can really bite you. Also, yeah. if you're referring to a mutable object and you think you've kind of captured the full state of this object and then it gets changed right under you and um which i think this is also kind of the maybe the danger of using lambdas that if you don't understand what how closures work or what you know when that effect kicks in that uh you might be writing code that that actually breaks under unexpected circumstances yeah and it can be incredibly hard to understand why if you have no idea that this is happening on the flip side you can use it for great power as well like let's just go to like something super simple i want to sort a list i'm going to say key key equals lambda of item mm-hmm. colon do something with the item mm-hmm. right but maybe there's other variables or other data that's in the function that you you want to use to decide how you sort like if it's below this cutoff i want it first but if it's after this cutoff right or like you know it's it somehow you got to compute with some other data it's not purely just the item. Like you if can, you wanted to sort, you had an address book with, I don't know, name and year of birth, and you wanted to sort it by well, some calculated value. Yeah, so or maybe, like both of them. Uh, right, right. So if they don't have a date of birth, you could have like, here's the default date of birth we're going to use. Right, yeah. Right, right. Substitute something. Yeah, they're yeah. all going to be born in 1970 or something. Who knows? So you could like have that as a local variable, but then include that in your sort lambda. But the function that's getting called it only takes the item and the list doesn't know about your need of this other variable. It's not going to pass it in, but you can just use closure to just capture it and just like bring in more arguments into your Lambda than would otherwise be available. And that's a super powerful thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that probably the main use case, what, what I personally yeah. use them for, um, there, there's uh, also a section in the article that talks about um, whether Lambdas are, we can consider them Pythonic or not. Uh, because in PEP8, which we just talked about, there's a, actually a recommendation there that says you should always use a def statement, so define a proper function, instead of an assignment statement that binds a lambda expression directly to an identifier. And so this is like a strong discouragement to using lambdas. I think mainly when, when you actually you want a named function. I yes. think anytime you actually want a named function, right. you should probably not use a lambda. But if it's like a one-off yeah. thing... That's where I would use it. Yeah, you even talk about it in your article a little bit, like anonymous functions, meaning they yes. have yes. no name. You're passing them somewhere. You're modifying the behavior like of the sort or whatever, but you're not naming the thing doing that. Yeah, that's right. And uh, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> that's right. I think one of the key essence of the Lambda, like decide, should I make a separate function or should I make a Lambda function? I think one of the key differences here, or the key decision, at least for me, is, is it going to be clearer to just plunk the implementation right here than to give it a good name and put it somewhere else? So if it made a lot of sense to give it a good name and put it over there, because it's kind of complicated, but the name tells you what it does, and then use that as the sort, great, do that. But if it's like, I'm going to sort just by like sort a list of customers. It's just lambda of C colon goes to C dot name. Okay. Like it would be more confusing to move that mm-hmm. away because then you have to be sure like sort by name. You're like, oh, wait a minute, descending or ascending? Well, it used, they renamed it to say sort by name ascending, but then they actually changed the implementation to mm-hmm. descending, but they forgot to rename it because 
they're afraid to break the code and just like there's all sorts of weird stuff if you move it away so if it's clearer to have it like in line then lambda otherwise not lambda I, that's my my test that's, that's a good rule of thumb like, i feel like i mainly use lambdas for exactly that that use case and otherwise try to stay away from them if you have to line break a lambda that's a problem yeah yeah that's <laughs> yeah that's maybe also a good heuristic right where yeah yeah you could only have you know, basically you can just put an expression into a, and so that's the other thing that we haven't even talked about so they're, they're also limited in what you can actually put into a lambda function right. so right. Uh, you, you can pretty much just have a single expression that would also be the result of which will also be returned as the return value of that of that function and uh, that also limits you but of course you could use all kinds of ugly workarounds to do something <laughs> that you're not really supposed to do with them so Exactly, exactly. But you can't have multi-line lambdas in Python, whereas you can in other languages. Like, for, for example, C-sharp has lambdas. They're basically the same idea, closure and all that. But you can put curly braces and make it 20 lines mm-hmm. long if you mm-hmm. think that's a good idea. JavaScript's kind of like that, right? You can, like, function curly or parenthesis arguments and then just curly braces, right? Like, so, so to tell you a secret, I feel like the, what forced me to understand closures was doing more JavaScript development because yeah, closure is all over the them. place in yeah. JavaScript, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it is for sure. And they have like similar ideas. They don't call it Lambda, but like they're, they have anonymous functions basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Are we already at number number, two, number, number nine. nine, number nine. There we go. Uh, yeah. So number nine is about Python coding interviews. So the article is called uh, how to stand out in a Python coding interview by James Timmons. And um, I felt that this is an important topic and it's um, hopefully also something useful for for you, dear listener. Uh, Maybe you have a Python coding interview coming up or you're worried about, you know, when the day comes where somebody's going to grill you on your Python skills. And um, we put this article together to cover some common situations. There are basically some tips that you can use to showcase your deep understanding of the Python programming language. And... uh, yeah, you uh, broke yeah, it into a couple included. of sections, right? You've got like, know your built-in functions, know the right data structure, take advantage of the standard library, right? If somebody says, I want you to use the quick sort, you're like, you know what? I created a list and Tim I called sort. sort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or something like that, right? Or I think the data structures is super important. That's a great giveaway. Like, I want you to get a bunch of, I don't know, say users and I want you in memory and I want you to look them up by, by ID and I want you to do that quickly. Right, like dictionary. Yeah, dictionary. Does look up quickly happen? Is that the question? Dictionary. <laughs> right, that's, that's <laughs> just, the, just just yell dictionary. <laughs> dictionary. <laughs> exactly. Or unique or distinct. Okay, set. Right. Yeah. Did they say distinct? They yep. mean set. Like it. Right. Like just right away. There's. You could have like a complicated ten line for loop where you test. Have you seen it before? Or set. Right. Like that's both knowing the built-ins and knowing the right data structures, I think. Yeah, and it is so much good stuff in the Python standard library or in the, in the core language. You know, another great one I think that's worth knowing about is uh, in the collections module, um, the counter class, which oh, is yeah. uh, if you ever need to count different items or, you know, how often does this string or this word occur? Right. A, I got a, a list of, of text, like a whole mm. bunch of domain names. I need to know like how many each one of them appears. Right. That sounds like a challenge or it sounds like two lines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you know counter, right? Yeah. You create Indeed. a, you import collections, you create a counter, they most common. Yep. Right. But like these things are incredibly simple when you know them, but if you don't know they exist, it's really challenging. I think that's actually a problem from not a problem, but a, a learning challenge 
kind of going back to your other article, I don't remember which number it was, <laughs> but the one, I think maybe number two, about all the projects, mm-hmm. right? Like some of those projects would be really easy if you knew the right libraries, but if you thought, I have to write this from pure Python from scratch, and I've got oh, to implement yeah. this stuff, right? Like, oh, that MP3 player is super hard. Like, let me get down to the bytes and look at it. Like, mm-hmm. no, you pip install like the MP3 library or whatever like it is that works with that, right? It's there's a whole lot of options. And I think learning Python is challenging because you learn the language and you think you've done it, but you've only like hit the 10%. Now you got to learn mm-hmm. the standard library. Then you got to learn everything on awesome Python or, or mm-hmm. PyPI or mm-hmm. right. So there's these levels and, you know, but I do think for tests for, uh, for interviewing, knowing the, the foundational stuff is most important. I agree. Yeah. And we were thinking, you know, we're going to pick stuff that, that is actually very likely to come up in an interview because in an interview, I think, you're not going to get super specific. You know, you're not going to talk about the LMHDB or whatever, the, yeah, the yeah. lightning memory, the, the, in memory <laughs> database that yep. we talked about earlier. That would be, nobody's going to expect, I mean, depending on the kind of role, but right. if it's, if, if it's data wants, science, yeah. they might n- expect you to know NumPy. Right. If you've claimed you know Python, you better know NumPy, at least cursory, right? Yeah, and if you claim but, that, you, you especially better know about things like the collections module, you know, these like core yeah, things. I yeah, think that yeah, most people for sure. Know about. Yeah. What about when you get stumped? What is your thoughts on like, you know, how do I do this thing? Like, you know, inside you're th- screaming, like, I have no idea. I, I start sweating profusely, profusely <laughs> and shivering. <laughs> Going to the fetal position. That, that's why I'm running my own company now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a tough one. I think the advice that I would give is start asking questions because it's oftentimes not a good sign if you ask someone a question in an interview setting and they immediately launch into writing code or they, they feel like they're expected to know the answer off the bat. A lot of times what the interviewer will want to see is how are you approaching a problem? Are you able to get help? Are you able to ask intelligent questions? And even if you don't know the specifics, I mean, nobody really expects that, right? A lot of times if you can use Google, if you can use Stack Overflow, if you can use you know, Talk Python and Real Python and yeah. all these, these sites that are available to you, you would have that in, in, in your normal working environment. You know, like I, I use Google and Stack Overflow like, probably like hundreds of times in a, in, a, in a productive day. I use it shamelessly without guilt or judgment, <laughs> right? I mean, that's right. because there's a bunch of stuff that you need to know, and then there's a bunch of stuff that just doesn't deserve to take up space in your memory, right? And you should just be able to go, all right, just, I'm just going to Google it. I don't know what the right way to do this library with that thing is. I'm going to Google it. But just like actually knowing that it exists and I just don't remember quite how to use it, I think is like the big step. Like I know I, can, I know there's a counter thing and I know it, I can get it to group by the count. I just don't remember how to, the steps to make that happen, right? Like I think that's okay. Yeah, I think that's totally okay. So just duck, duck, go it. Just bing it. Google yeah. it. <laughs> just I, just duck, al- duck, go Alta it. Vista it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what yeah, else yeah. is there. Yahoo it. Yeah, yeah, Alta Vista. That's a good one. I remember that. That was that was good. Uh, one other thing I would sort of put out there is like a huge turnoff to me if I was interviewing. I did that for a while with people. If I feel like they are lying to me, they're done. I don't care if they seem good. If I say like, oh, how would you do that with SQL Alchemy? Oh, like I've used so much SQL Alchemy. And then you can tell like they've never, ever, ever seen it, right? Like mm-hmm. they don't even, they can't even describe like, well, what I would do is create a class that derives from like, like another class and it maps to the database, like, like that's a foreign idea, like that, but they're claiming like they've used it in production, like done. Not a good strategy. Not, yeah. I would, I don't know. How do you feel like, yeah, would, no, would you hire that person? Cause everything I, else comes to the question, right? I agree. It's, it's uh yeah, it's at that, that you want to find 
find out would you as the interviewer i feel like you also want to find out would you want to have this person on your team would you want to work right. with them and right would i trust them to yeah, be they start making up stuff like hey you know did you review that pull request or request or did you merge that hotfix or did you i don't know do that and then right you feel like you can't really rely on that person then that's not a good start yeah, yeah. or we're gonna build an e-commerce back in who's done payment stuff before and feels like they can do it mm-hmm. right like yeah, maybe not. I don't Def- know. Definitely so, use floats for currency. Then, then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, if we have that one in the list, but that's, that's also a really common question, I feel like, where, where people are like, oh, what data type should you use to represent currency in your program? And, right, uh, right. Integers probably, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And then break it down to, <laughs> to cents and then use integers, yeah. Just like, round it, just round it. For, yeah, about a dollar. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's all good. It's about a dollar. All right, well, we're okay. coming up on the... The grand finale here, and this is another one that I could, I'm very passionate about, I could riff on for a long time, so you'll have to stop me at some point, but it has to do with the object-oriented programming component of Python. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the article is called Inheritance and, Comp- and Composition, a Python OOP Guide by uh, Isaac Rodriguez, and I think Inheritance and Composition, that is the, one of the core pieces of object-oriented programming, and um, in my experience, it's also the piece that if you're completely new to OOP and you're trying to understand, okay, well, how is this helpful? Like, how does this work? It can be a sticking point for some people. Yeah. So we wanted to do a dedicated article that is, yeah, basically a deep dive on inheritance. It sounds a little bit like modeling with objects and just like some practices around that. Right, yeah. And how do you go about like breaking down a hierarchy or like, a, I guess, a domain into a hierarchy yes. of objects? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That was just getting at. And so... Maybe we should define inheritance and composition. I think inheritance is pretty clear. Composition might be a little less well-known. So inheritance is, I want to model like a bunch of cars. So I have a, a basic car or just a car, but then I have a sports car that does sporty things, right? Maybe it has like paddle shifters or it has like a manual transmission mode that has additional functionality. So I might say, all right, well, the idea is what we're going to do is we're going to create a car and a sports car. And then maybe I want to have a, a track car that can also take slicks. Like, so it derives from a sports car. And the deeper that those get, the more full of the abstractions can break down pretty hard, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you model creatures, I've, I've got an, a living animal and then I've got a bird. And then I've got, what do you do with a robot bird, right? Does it derive from That's bird? That's a hard one. Right? Like it, it has bird-like things, but the, the animal eats. Robot doesn't eat, right? So, like, the, if you go too deep, it makes it's a problem, right? So that's inheritance, obviously. Uh, composition, tell us about it. So composition. So if inheritance defines is a relationship, so like a sports car is a car, and the yeah. car is a vehicle, and a vehicle mm-hmm. is a thing or whatever machine. Composition defines a has a relationship. So you could right. say, okay, a car has an engine, or a car has a steering wheel, and it right, has and it has wheels. a transmission. Instead of making a sports car, maybe you just make a car with a sporty transmission, mm-hmm. right? And so the whole thing doesn't have to like, because I don't know, what if you have some kind of truck, but it also has like a manual shifting thing, right? It could, right? You wouldn't have a truck derived from a sports car. That would be weird, right? But you could easily like interchange the parts and it, it helps really alleviate some of those like deep object hierarchies, I think. Yeah, yeah it's, it's basically another tool in your toolbox there for defining these relationships because if if you define everything in terms of a inheritance relationship then you end up with these unmaintainable 
like the you end up on the the dark side of OOP. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And like <laughs> small changes to like a deep down base class can make absurd things in the end, like a robot that has to eat or something like that. Because maybe the animal didn't eat at first and that made sense. But now later you realize all the animals have to eat. And then like, well, what do you do about the the robot thing that we put there? Like That's where you use multiple inheritances. (laughs) It's like a whole dutter can of worms. (laughs) That's a a big can of worms as well, for sure. But I'm a big fan of composition. I think, I can't remember where I heard. I'm pretty sure the original Gang of Four Mm. design patterns book said Mm -hmm. prefer composition over inheritance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you want shallow... Hierarchies, yeah, yeah, like you're gonna like it's objects and inherits aren't inherently bad, but they're easy to abuse, and so composition is a really way, good way to keep those shallow and interchangeable and small. So yeah, quite quite cool. I, I like this one a lot. Wow, did we really make it to the all the way? Oh, actually, speaking of the the Gang of Four book, I think that might be a recommendation here at the end of the article because we um, recommended we reading. To, yeah. yeah, also always give yeah. Um, so the, the article comes right? with recommended reading, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got so some the, cool design design patterns. Uh, head-first design patterns, clean code, solid principles, Liskov substitution principle, all those kind of things. Yeah, a lot of these apply. It would be remiss of us, I think, to riff so fondly on like an object-oriented story in Python without seeing that like a lot of what people do with objects and classes and other languages is simply unnecessary mm-hmm. in Python, right? So there is a little bit of pushback. Well, I know you did Java, and everything had to be a class, mm-hmm. you don't have to build it this way, right? Like, for example, if you have a variable that you need to be basically a singleton, and then you want to group a bunch of functions together, you could have a static class that has those in there in like Java or C Sharp or, or something like that. But you could also, in Python, just have a module that has a variable, mm-hmm. and it has functions. And then if you just import that module, you say that module dot, the, the field or, or the the variables or the functions that's the same thing as a static class right yeah you right don't, you don't have and you don't it saves you a bunch of work and it's it's more pythonic yes i guess right than making everything a, a class yeah so there i mean maybe there's a, a little bit of do i really need a class for that right if you're going to create different ones of them they have different values at the same time like well probably right but maybe if you're like just trying to group stuff maybe the module's the right thing but if you do decide and it does make sense to have a class this inheritance versus composition thing is super important to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to give the impression that, like, you know, if, you, if you're writing in an uh, object-oriented programming st- style, that that's somehow superior or like the end-all, uh, you know, of, of coding. I, I don't. I don't think that's that's actually true. I think the the really powerful thing is understanding these tools, like to have a really big toolbox and being able to pick the things that make the most sense. Like a lot of times, you know, when when I'm writing a program in Python or I'm sketching something out, I I'll hardly like write any classes depending on, on the use case. Or I found myself, you know, most recently just basically adding like these like. So I've been working on, on the real Python platform a lot, and um, I've been writing more function based code or procedural code where maybe my data model is class based, but then I'll have you know a, a module or I don't know redeeming access codes or coupon codes or something like that, and it basically defines like a really nice high level intervi- interface to me. That, right. that these are the five operations you do on coupons or something right yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that's all function based yeah and then internally they they use classes to, to kind of represent the data and, and shuffle it right around, probably but, working with django rm or something like that right right yeah. yeah yeah instead of cramming that all into a view or actually i prefer for example a function-based views in django instead of class-based views because i don't like sort of the, getting the deeper intendation uh, we could we could get into all kinds of uh <laughs> yeah the whole indentation of another story yeah. <laughs> disagreements there but 
um, yeah, just just want to make sure you know that that I get this across that uh, I don't think the OOP coding style is uh, not is the a, one true way. The the one true way of this should be one, exactly one way to do things in Python. Yeah, yeah. But if you're gonna do it, like understanding this this difference between inheritance and composition, certainly certainly makes sense. I Absolutely. do a lot of what you're recommending there as well. All right, well that's our top ten wow. items, Dan. Yeah, that uh, that went by super fast. Yeah, it did go by fast. But I think these all have special value and, you know, people might be kicking back. A lot of folks have vacation time around this time of year. You know, they're also thinking of what's coming in, in the next year in 2020. I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, let's just take a moment and say thank you, Python 2, but goodbye. Yeah, bye-bye. <laughs> we'll, we'll miss you. The, the death clock <laughs> is down to single-digit days probably at this point, right? So. That's actually pretty exciting. Yeah, that's a big change, right? Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, cool. All right, well, there's a bunch of articles for people to check out while they're on vacation, got some time away from work, and they don't have to you know, fill out TPS reports all day. Yeah. <laughs> smash that printer. <laughs> that's right, smash that printer. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, thanks for being here as always. Cool, yeah, thanks for inviting me. It was, it was great. You're welcome. I, I, I guess I should ask you the two questions before you go. So the two questions are... What editor do you use to write Python code these days? So I've started to use uh, Visual Studio Code a lot. I use um, Sublime Text. Yeah, it's a pretty similar style of editor. Very similar, right? Yeah. Yeah. What I still love about Sublime is just how fast it is. Like there's there's a noticeable difference in in the rendering speed and and scrolling around, but um, the Python integration that VS Code has out of the box is is really cool it's growing and growing all the things it can do yeah, and so, and I, I like it for recording video courses because you know, i can have an integrated shell there i can have a setup that looks really really nice i think and um so i've been doing that a lot recently and so yeah i'll working out of vs code yeah awesome the other question changing for today what's next for real python in 2020 100 authors yeah that's a big goal of mine you know i want to i would love to have 100 authors published on the site authors and instructors as a magical number and, um, you know, maybe we'll crack that 3 million visitors. I don't know how many Python developers are out there. There's well, I be suspect after they listen to this episode, it'll probably be 3 million straight up. It'll be 10 more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. It's going to, yeah. Awesome. Well, best of luck in 2020 and keep up the good work. It's, it's a huge resource for everyone. Thank you. I mean, you know, same to you. Like, it's been so cool just becoming friends with you. And when we first met, which was, I think, like three years ago. Three or four years ago. It's quite, yeah. quite a while back. And, and just being on this, on this journey here together, I, I really appreciate that. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Know. Thank you. Same to you. It's, it's been fun to be on it together. Awesome, man. All right, well, catch you later. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Dan Bader, and it's been brought to you by Linode and Brilliant.org. Start your next Python project on Linode's state-of-the-art cloud service. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E. You'll automatically get a $20 credit when you create a new account. Brilliant.org encourages you to give the gift of critical thought and knowledge. Visit talkpython.fm slash brilliant and grab a gift subscription to help your loved ones finish their day a little smarter this season. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our everything bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, 
in the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.